Good afternoon, and welcome to Turning Disparate Streams of Data into Actionable Intelligence at the Point of Care, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Snowflake. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. Uh, we're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions and comments uh, in the Q&A box, and we'll take those later in the program, but send them in as they occur to you. We're also going to do a poll later in the event. We'll have our panelists guess at the results. We always find that to be a lot of fun, so we look forward to that. Um, regard, a nice way to view the screen, uh, click in the top center, get it in side-by-side -side mode, then you can adjust the divider, and you can get, uh, it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. So it's a nice way to look at your screen. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go about 35-40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Dr. Stephen Lane. Clinical Informatics Director for Privacy, Information Security, and Interoperability with Sutter Health. Kirk Hansen, Director of Enterprise Data Governance with Geisinger Health System. And Todd Crossland, Head of Healthcare and Life Sciences with Snowflake. So let's jump right into our conversation. Uh, Stephen, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Sure. Uh, I work at Sutter Health, which is a large integrated uh, healthcare system in Northern California based out of uh, Sacramento, the state capital. Uh, we've got around 30 hospitals, uh, care for millions of patients, uh, and uh, I've been working here about 30 years. I um, came in as one of the very first uh, clinical informaticists at Sutter Health, and, and we were early adopters of uh, health information technology. We were the first uh, EPIC EHR install in California back in the late 90s, and uh, we've done a lot of work with, with health IT over the years. Um, we also, uh, of note, uh, implemented the very first uh, EPIC MyChart patient portal in the country in about uh, 2001. So uh, it's, uh, it's been a great run, and it's a great organization. Very good. Kirk? I'm uh, Kirk Hansen uh, from Geisinger Health. We're an integrated care delivery system also. Um, not nearly the size of Sutter. Uh, we're, we have seven hospitals, about 60 clinics, um, about 700,000 covered lives on our payer side. We have a very active research program and, and a medical school. Um, and, uh, and my role is to find ways to get more and more value from our, from our data assets. We're a longtime Epic customer also. I think we go back to maybe not, maybe not the late 90s, but um, nearly as long um, and uh, and getting value from our data assets we do that through three pathways um, through data access data content and data quality access content and quality very good Todd yeah so Todd Crossland uh, head of healthcare and life sciences here at Snowflake so Snowflake is 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 uh, basically what we, we call ourselves today is the cloud data platform uh, and really what that means is you know, a, a, a service delivery of, of what you would think of as a data warehouse in the past uh, has really evolved to what we now call the cloud data platform. So bring all of your data, uh, bring as much as you want, uh, and you don't have to worry about tuning knobs and, and, and maintaining platforms and what have you. So it's a, 
uh, cloud agnostic, we, we run across all three public clouds uh, as a single platform and allow for um, data sharing without copying data. So uh, that's, a, that's an interesting concept and one I think is relevant for the discussion today around interoperability. Uh, we'll get into, but uh, but I basically lead the healthcare and life sciences practice. You know, Snowflake is, uh, you know, in every industry, uh, every regulated industry, uh, and I'm fortunate enough to, to run the practice. I've been in the space um, for over 30 years, uh, self-proclaimed data geek myself, uh, and actually was a very early adopter uh, of Snowflake, the first one to uh, place PHI into the platform back in 2016. So pleasure to be with you today. So you were a customer, Todd? Is that what you're saying? I'm, I was. I was a very, very early adopter. So Interesting. Very good. All right. First question. Uh, we're going to talk about how to make data interoperable. But first, let's talk about the importance of having high-quality data in the first place. What are some reasons for poor data quality, and how can they be overcome? Kirk, why don't you start us off? Oh, thanks. Thanks, Anthony. Well, um, there's, uh, there's no shortage of data that could be better, that's for sure. Um, for us, the, the, uh, the biggest challenge is, is keeping our focus on the data that's most important to the enterprise. Not all data is created equal. Um, and the most important data is that data that enables your business's key processes. Um, and, and of that data, um, the challenge that we have is to identify the quick wins. Um, maybe someday we can move beyond the quick wins, but I'm not sure when that day will come. Um, the highest payoff for a reasonable effort is, is what we're looking for. It's never a low effort. Um, it, it's, uh, and that's because when, when you're trying to correct the data quality issue, most often that data quality issue traces back to some poorly functioning operational process and, and process reengineering. Um, for, for anyone with even small experience in that area, um, in any sizable organization is tough. And, uh, and it, it, as we look around all of the different data quality improvement opportunities that we have right now, <clears throat> our focus, our main effort is on mastering um, our member, our patient, and our provider data domains. Tell me a little bit more about that. The, the last part, what you said, your main focus is mastering our yeah. mastering those three domains, our, our providers and our customers. Well, um, the, uh, the the reason that we that we have identified that as as the data to focus on is, is because it's data that is shared across every every system in our inner in our enterprise. Um, the transactional systems are our EHR our core claim system. Um, many, many, many of those uh, of those entities are shared across those platforms. So, getting that data right, um, it uh, it not only is, is it uh, improve the quality in those in in those individual um, platforms, um, but it enables us to um, to be able to to use that data to be able to to, to join the the uh, the different data sources. Um, and, uh, and be able to you know, clearly identify which, uh, which patient and is a, is a specific member um, or, you know, in some cases, even some of our employees are uh, fall into our, into our customer category. Um, so what we find is that um, before we started mastering data, um, we, we were very, uh, we, we were stuck in individual data sources, but as our, as our data mastering program has, 
matured, um, we're finding it easier and easier to um, to move easily across those those different data sources um, and take advantage of the of the richness um, that comes with being able to combine data sources um, to to gain insights. Very good, Todd. Your thoughts? Yeah. So I think to me the the you know we see it in 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 intake processes of of data still coming in <clears throat> in disparate fashions. Um, and I, I look back in my career around around being a, a data geek and driving and driving and change. To me, it's a feedback loop. Is people that are inputting data that don't have high quality most of the time don't know they're inputting data at not high quality. There's a lack of a feedback loop, and I think that's massively important in order to solve this problem. Is that you're always going to have human input now. Device data, great. That should be fine. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, things like genomic data, right? Uh, chances of you know uh, of errors are still there. But I, I, when I think about quality data, I think about the input process. <clears throat> and to me, that's the biggest. And and what I've seen be the most successful is that if people don't know they're doing things wrong, then they're going to continue continue to do them wrong. Um, and, and to me, that's that's the biggest way to to overcome data quality is let people know that it's that it's not good data quality. Um, and part of that's identification as well is is you know, bringing massive amounts of, of data to bear and allowing people to have access to it to analyze its quality uh, is a big part of that. Now, statistically, you can throw out, right, and, and what have you, but I still think in the end is providing that feedback loop uh, to the people that are providing the data is, is one of the best ways we can go after quality data. Todd, does an example come to mind? You talk about the input or intake process being yep. critical. When we're talking about in a hospital setting, does something just come to mind immediately, like this is a typical place where you have issues with this specific type of input uh, because of the workflow or whatever, and this causes the down downstream problems? Yeah, I think that I'm trying to think my, my background's in pharmacy uh, to give you just when I, where I came from and what have you and, and going way, way back as a, as, even as a teenager, you know, I was a pharmacy technician. And I think that, you know, looking back on that, it, it's anywhere where there's an ability to freeform, right? That, that, that's kind of the key. Like when, when I go back to looking at instructions and I look at, you know, uh, calculating and I'll go ahead and get really specific uh, on adherence, day supply. So let's talk about, you know, the way that if directions are put in, 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 in entered into a system without a calculation to calculate day supply and it's chronic medication, then how does a system downstream calculate uh, PDC, proportion of days covered, which is kind of the accepted standard of how you measure uh, adherence. Um, if, if that data is not put in, if the, if the, the technician like myself is, is a little bit, I hate to say, you know, lazy, but just, just puts it in as, you know, take one daily, but doesn't use the coding mechanism that mm -hmm. will calculate one day to be now a 30 day supply or a 90 day supply, then they don't like for them, they're like, well, the directions are correct. The patient, you know, is instructed to take it one a day, um, but on the back end, that that 30-day or 90-day calculation doesn't occur for that chronic medication. So your your analysis of proportion of days covered is now flawed. So, Stephen, wherever you want to jump in there, your thoughts. Oh, I have so many thoughts. So I think I'm the only <laughs> clinician on the panel. So I mean, I really do approach this from a slightly different perspective, but I think that all the points that were just made are, are excellent. I think that the example of the pharmacy technician, you know, entering SIG information or dispense information, I mean, that just gets multiplied when you're talking about providers 
who are you know, or writing prescriptions or entering diagnoses or, or entering medical history. We really don't have established standards for how these things are done. You know, we, we all use ICD-10 to support our billing, but ICD-10 is incredibly complicated. You know, we all use one of the major med uh, database vendors in our EHRs, but they're a little different. And, and like the SIG example is wonderful. I mean, have getting clinicians to enter discrete SIG information so the system can calculate whether you're talking about total lifetime dose or daily dose or dispense information, that's a lot more work for a clinician to do that. And, uh, and then what happens is that as we share data across our ecosystem, when I send a, a medication to a pharmacy and then they send me back a refill request or a renewal request, it often comes back with a free text SIG, whereas I sent them a discrete SIG. Uh, and then either I personally take the time to reinitiate a discrete SIG, which is you know a half a dozen more clicks than, than it would be to just accept the one they sent me or not. So I think this notion about who is actually entering the data, what is their stake in that? How, how can we help people understand that the data they put in is going to impact the quality of the outcome, the clinical outcome, the financial outcome, you name it, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, we too, like others, have spent a lot of time and energy uh, looking at enterprise data governance, enterprise data management, looking at key pieces of data that we use to run our organization and, and assuring that they are as standardized as possible and that, that we're looking at them but it's, it's really challenging. And as we're gonna get into discussing interoperability, uh, the challenge now is how to manage the quality of the data that you generate internally, and then integrate that, normalize it with data that you receive from other sources where you don't control the data input and you're beholden upon uh, the, the quality of the data you're receiving. And then how do you normalize that? How do you deduplicate that? The, the challenge of deduplication, certainly when I come back to clinical data, is huge. I mean, we are sharing millions of bits of data every single day. And whenever my patient, you know, ours is an open network, uh, so our patients routinely will go to other organizations that use similar or different health information technology. And, and as they move around, you know, everyone's generating data, and we want to be able to bring it together. We want to be able to create a single view of the entire patient story, uh, financial, clinical, social, et cetera, and then to be able to utilize that to make decisions. And we're, we're a long way from that. I mean, we're, we're getting closer. Uh, I think the, the play that Cloudera has uh, is potentially a piece of the solution, uh, but I think we, you know, today most of us are managing data internal to our systems and really are challenged by, by keeping that data whole and be duplicated and putting it to best use. All right. Very good, Stephen. Thank you for that. Actually, we're going to start off with you. We're going to keep you, um, have you start for this question. How would you describe the current state? You know, we talked about, and we're going to get more into this, this issue of the data as, it, as it's created and as it sits in one system. And then, as you mentioned, mixing that with other uh, sources of data. And so if you've got bad data in one place, you're bringing together bad data, you've got a whole mess on your hands. Um, but how would you describe the current state of interoperability? I know you're very active in this area. And what are the main challenges associated with bringing data from disparate sources together? 
Well, I think as I, as I started to mention, uh, we clearly over the last 10 and especially the last five years have really kind of crossed the tipping point with interoperability. Data is flowing. You know, it wasn't but a year or two ago, you'd go to a meeting like this and people would say, oh, we're never going to see interoperability in my lifetime. And, you know, and today, I think everyone's gotten over that. <laughs> in fact, if anything, there's this sense that people are drowning in data. And, and you know, and it's interesting because the, the challenges are very real. I think for a lot of clinicians and even data analysts, they're, they're comfortable with the data that they've generated inside their own system. And, and they kind of want to stick with that. It's like an old fashioned view of I've got, I've got the manila envelope or manila folder for the patient's chart in front of me. I'm just going to look at that. And I know other things have happened, but I just don't want to deal with it. Because it, truly, for a lot of systems, that external data is still not seamlessly and effortlessly integrated into the processes, whether they're the analytic or the clinical or the operational processes, and it's still an extra bit of work. So I think that one of our biggest challenges is finding those opportunities to integrate external data automatically, whether it's taking claims data and using that to inform the clinical process, um, whether it's taking clinical data from an outside system and integrating that into your analytics to do predictive analytics, to, to do modeling, to do outreach to patients, care gaps, et cetera. Um, but, I, but I think we have a very real challenge, as I mentioned earlier, in, in deduplication and, and integration. So, so when a med comes back, another great example, you know, a patient of mine goes to uh, the ER across the street, another system, even on the same health IT platform, when they come back, I have to individually reconcile their meds uh, to be able to glean whether there has been a change. So I think that you know, while the volume of data is moving, um, you know, they, they refer at ONC to access exchange and use. Uh, so I can almost always access the data when my patient goes into another system. I can almost always exchange the data, but using the data, it's really the use piece that we're up against now and doing that in a way that, uh, that it happens more automatically, integrating, deduplicating, we're, we're not quite there yet. Todd, um, you know, Stephen mentioned a couple of things. You're talking about, you know, trust issues with, with leveraging outside data. There's trust issues. I don't know if this is accurate. You know, I'm, I'm going to, am I going to dictate care based on this test result? And I don't know. I don't know if it was done right. I don't know if it was input right. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stake my license on that. And then there's effort for, even if I do trust it, but if it's outside of my workflow, I have to click over here, over there. I don't have the password to this system. So there's a few hurdles. Uh, it's easy to reject it, right? It's easy to say, hey, it's too much. So we have to do a lot to make it comfortable for the clinician to want to use that data. But what are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's interesting about trust. And I'll, I'll give a real-life example that – and it's been a, a, few, a couple of years since I've been, you know, uh, outside inside pharmacy. But it's – it was interesting on the on the control substance efforts done by the states that uh, we had to pharmacies had to be presented with the utilization of that patient from across the state, which was an interoperability effort. And yet, so it was present. We had to have an API to that as a, a PDX, just so you know uh, where I was prior uh, as a pharmacy platform. And and once that data was presented via the API, we were not allowed to keep it. It had to be dropped off the screen. So if you're a pharmacist and you're looking at this and you're going to make a you're going to make a determination 
around opioids based on something that I'm seeing on my screen. And two seconds later, when I'm done and I say, bye, it has to go. I got into serious conversations with the people that were creating these capabilities saying, why can't I bring the data in, right? And, and have a, a, a history of, of how that pharmacist made that decision. <clears throat> and you know the reason why, right? Is because they didn't have confidence in the accuracy of the data. Um, yeah. So that so to right to Stephen's point of trust, right? How do you trust that external source? Now I'm gonna I'm gonna go. You know that's a horrible situation. And then to the thing where I'm a, I'm passionate about is patient generated data. And and while we have the same trust issues with it of coming from an Apple Watch or coming from you know a, a diabetic monitor or whatever that is, you know, or a patient self reported information. We have those same challenges of whether it was input by a clinician in another health system or it was inputted by a patient at home. Uh, and so it's I don't know that there's any quick and easy answer to this, but I, I'm a belief in the more data, the better to a point we don't want to drown in it. Um, but that, you know, we have to, you know, we have to start trusting data from other sources, you know, like patients at the same time, though, is how do we get to your point, Stephen, those external data sources um, and that's one of the things that we're working on via what's known as the data marketplace is this ability to take in external data sources on the fly, basically saying, hey, there's, you know, COVID data out there uh, that's being put on Snowflake's marketplace. I say join to that data. There's no FTP. There's no ETL. You just join to that data source and you can start, you know, running models against it and, and it now augments your data set. So that's where we're starting. Uh, and that's where it's begun, but there's now other data sets that are available that are, you know, even more uh, clinically relevant that will be in places like the marketplace. Now, uh, again, it comes down to trusting the source. Um, and I think that comes through collaboration. That comes through communication. That comes through, right, is understanding the, the, the data uh, lineage uh, of where that, where that data came from. Hey, Kirk? Tony, can I jump in on the, oh. on the trust issue just real quick? Sure, sure. Yeah. So I think, again, to bring a clinical perspective, you know, I've been in practice for well over 30 years. And, uh, you know, back in the day, uh, clinicians always made decisions based on incomplete information. You know, you would, you would have a paper chart, you'd have some x-rays, you'd have some, you know, some patient reported information, you might get a fax or, or a copy from somewhere else. And you were always you know, cognitively integrating that data, you know, and without really, you know, specifying your degree of trust in the data, you took it all into account and you made your best decision. I mean, I don't think about good data and bad data. I mean, I know there's data that's really difficult to integrate, um, but, you know, it, but it's all data. And when you're making a clinical decision, when you're, when you're looking at population health, I mean, you want to integrate as much of the data as you can. Um, Clearly, you know, there are sources that are going to be of higher quality that, that where you can integrate that more easily. There are going to be sources where you really do feel like you can trust. But, you know, when we started down the interoperability path 15 years ago, there was so much lack of trust. There was like, you know, well, uh, a sodium from this university hospital across the street is different than a sodium that came from this other university hospital up the road. And I just think that's crazy. I mean, everyone in healthcare is, is doing a good job. Uh, and, and I think that the, the trust issues actually get in the way of us fully utilizing the data. I mean, I know our vendor, you, you know, they, they put in these barriers to integrating external data because their customers have told them, well, you know, we don't trust it. I think your blood pressure 
example was a great one. The most reliable blood pressures are taken when a patient is sitting quietly in a comfortable place for five minutes, you know, and they can use an automated device and check their blood pressure. Well, that's only going to be done at home. That's certainly never done in my office. You know, they're <laughs> anxious when they walk in the door, right? So, I mean, so home generated, you know, certain types of data are going to be more reliable when they're generated elsewhere and then brought in. So I think we, we have to, I think this notion of good data and bad data gets, gets in our way. Isn't there Excellent. data that Kirk? you just, well, well just, a, just a quick follow-up question though. Isn't there data that you just, I don't know, you, you just don't trust at all though? I mean, it, when, when you're, I guess when you're doing the, the kind of the cognitive analysis of all the different data points that are, that are presented to you, is, is there never data that you look at it and you just say, oh, that can't be, that can't be good? Not in a black and white way. I, th I think it's more nuanced than that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I, having, you know, I was fortunate enough, you know, when implementing Snowflake to be able to, I had customers that trusted me, you know, with, because it was, or, I mean, this was a new technology back in 2016. And, and so there was a lot, so speaking of trust, uh, there was a lot of trust being placed in us and in Snowflake as a new technology. And, and so I was allowed to really dive into our client's data. And I, and I, I agree, Stephen, it's not a black or white thing. I, I may look at something and go, I'm going to, you know, severely discount the influence of, of certain data, but I'm not going to black and white discount it because you never know uh, that it, it, there may be insight in, into that, something that you've discounted. So it, it's, I agree, it's not black and white, but it, you know, I, I absolutely agree with the, right. You, 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 we're always, we're getting better at making better decisions. Clinicians are being given more information. And I think so long as, as you, you present the lineage and present where it came from, it allows you to make a better decision than what you were in the past. So. Hmm. That's interesting. So when I, when I think about this particular uh, topic that, that Anthony's introduced here, you, you, you're that both of you are focusing kind of on external, you know, interoperability with external systems. Um, you know, in, in our, in our sphere, um, although we, we are thinking about that as well, I guess all of us are now that the interoperability rule has, has come to pass, but, but we're also focusing very internally on interoperability. Um, and gosh, one of the biggest challenges that we face is even within our enterprise, um, what seems to be almost a cultural distrust of data that, that would potentially be offered from, from other platforms. Um, you know, one of, one of the, uh, the big advantages of, a, of mastering data is that, um, you know, you, you put a lot of effort into creating a best version of truth record about, uh, you know, a patient, uh, about some person. Um, and then after putting all of that effort into it, you want to be able to distribute that to all of the other transactional systems that would benefit from this, this, uh, this, this best version of the truth that you have about this, this person. Um, but gosh, it, it's, a uh, it, you know, sort of a visceral uh, reaction to that. You know, there, there's a, um, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, an automatic distrust of data that comes from another system. Um, so my, my assumption was, that um, that every system, you know, every every the the owner of every system, um, naturally believes that you know the processes by which the data that data that uh, that exists in his the, the the way the data was gathered to you know in, into his system, those processes are pretty good, 
and, and he trusts those, but because he has no visibility of the processes that were used in other systems, there's an automatic distrust. Um, so, um, you know, that, that in my mind is, is one of the greatest challenges to interoperability. It's not a technical challenge, um, although there are plenty of those. I, the, uh, you know, it's disappointing that, that some vendors, um, even monolithic electronic health record vendors, um, seem to be so resistant to uh, to adopting you know kind of an API framework, but but you know apart from the technical challenges, there's there's this cultural challenge that makes things very difficult when you try to share data across platforms. You know, just a couple of comments on that. One is I think you just you may have a new term: the data xenophobia. You know, the the notion that data that comes from outside, I just can't can't trust it. I'm afraid of it, and. Uh, and I think we do need to have ways to deal with that. Uh, the other is, you know, some, you know, you, you posited that uh, people have the greatest trust in the data that they generate, but I think people also have the greatest knowledge about the data that they generate. And sometimes they realize that even that that, that data is is not of high quality. Uh, and I'm not sure this is a perfect example, but you know, as we've gone through the uh, our preparations for the information blocking rules. Um, we've yeah, had to go through and look at individual note types and which ones we're going to share both with patients and their proxies as well as with other providers. And one of the things that came up was medical student notes, you know, and, and our, our educational program said, well, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't share the medical student notes because they're not really the same quality as the attending note, but we want them to be able to write them in the chart. But we, we don't think of them, we don't take them nearly as seriously as we take those of the attending physicians. But the rule says, you know, if it's a progress note, it's a progress note and it's going out. So it's going to be exchanged. So that's a situation where, where in your internal data folks say, we don't trust this data or we don't hold it in the same esteem as other data. But we have no way to say that or to flag data as it goes out to say, you know, you, we, you might, you might want to discard this or, or discount this or, or contextualize it differently. That's not really part of the sending protocol. You should call yeah, it the good. grain of salt, the grain of salt label, right? Take this with <laughs> a grain of salt. Go ahead, Kirk. Well, I was going to say, I, I think that's a great point. It, uh, the, the, uh, the folks associated with any given system are certainly not naive enough to think that their data is perfect, but they understand what the problems are and they understand right. why the problems exist. So they're a lot more comfortable with them. That's a great point. Todd, any thoughts, sir? Yeah, no, I was interesting, Kirk, I looked at your background and <clears throat> you have an engineering background and, and I was I was wondering if you're gonna go, I mean, you, you think of the route of, of, of engineering and, and I saw you, I have friends at Lockheed Martin uh, and so you were at Lockheed for a while and you think about the processes that go into building a plane or what have you, and, and anyone can look at, you know, unfortunate situation with Boeing and the 737 MAX and all that and quality processes and trusting, right, and all of that. And I think in a non-biologic way, it's, I don't want to say it's easier. I'm going to say it's simpler and probably you'll get mad at me. But I mean, it's, it, it's you know, there's a process of trusting sources and what have you, because you can test and retest, you know, uh, stresses on, on substances and what have you. But the human is a biologic being, right? And, and how we you know, when we take data about it, we can we can get massive amounts of data, and yet every one of us is unique in a certain way. So, you know, trying to make decisions, best decisions on data, all we can do is get as much data as we can and make the best decision based upon the data and our experience, right? Uh, and I just think it, it's it's interesting, right? Is the way we apply 
rigor and, and to data, we have to all take it within a grain of salt of the fact that we're dealing with a biological human, right? Versus, you know, a, a piece of metal just to, to keep it super simple. So. All right. Let's, uh, let's jump into a little bit, uh, talking about the cloud and, uh, the issues there, the benefits there, the potential benefits. Um, what role can the cloud play in improving the ability to leverage data? Todd, why don't you start us off? Sure. So I think the one, one right out of the gate, and I think, you know, most people recognize this is, is, is the word scale. And what I mean by scale is, is, you know, is, is two parts is, is volume and performance. Um, and by volume, you know, and, and for us as an example, if you want to bring a terabyte of data into Snowflake in five seconds, you can do that. You can just bring it in. No one has to do anything. Um, and so the, the five terabytes is there. By the way, it's not just five terabytes. We had a, we had a client ingest the top med NIH data set, you know, the, the VCF data, the variant call format data. And so they spun up, you know, a significant amount of Snowflake clusters, ingested the data, was over a trillion data points. And the key was, is when they were done, they shut it off. Right. So from a cloud perspective on that scale, it was petabytes of data. Right. That basically you just said copy in petabytes of data. Right. And you did. There was no having to wait six months for someone to procure something. OK. The performance to be able to do that, the on demand compute capability was just there in seconds and it did it. And when it was done, it was turned off. So that bursting capability of, of being able to burst up to what you need and then to come back down to zero you know, is a big, is a, is a big part of this. So the, the ability to say it's, per, it's scale and performance on demand. And then when you don't want it, you don't need it. The second part I think for cloud is experimentation. Our CEO talks about this. I don't care what industry this is. The ability to experiment in cloud is to say, I want to try something and you can try it right now. You don't have to wait again, six months for someone to procure something, you know, on premise or what have you, you can experiment on demand. And, and I think there's a culture change there that we're starting to really see. And people that, that are adopting cloud technologies like Snowflake, they're like, oh, I, I can now try this. I can now clone my, you know, my, my production data set. It's called a zero copy clone. And, and, and I, can try, I can experiment something. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, I just get rid of the clone. And, and, and it's like nothing happened. So I, I think experimentation is the other massive concept that that the cloud allows you to do. Kirk, any thoughts around cloud? Well, I'll tell you, um, the, the, uh, the points that, that uh, Todd just outlined are really attractive to us. When it, when it comes down to us, you know, this, is, this is a little bit of kind of a, a theoretical excursion because we, you know, quite frankly, at Geisinger, we haven't done a lot with, uh, with cloud. We're looking at it very carefully. In fact, in fact Snowflake is, uh, is one of the, the platforms that we're most interested in. The value proposition for us, though, I think it comes down to um, being freeing up resources, um, and and you know, most most importantly, time and money, um, and then being able to reapply those resources um, to other programs that you know today we really can't entertain just because of the lack of time and money to do it. Um, that that to us is the is the huge win that's available um, to migrating to the cloud. Um, we're anxious to do it. Um, just uh, you know, being being uh, thoughtful about it, and you know, of course, it takes a little bit of time. Absolutely. 
Okay, I'm going to throw out our our. Whoa, audience. whoa! I didn't get a chance. Yeah, oh, Stephen, I'm sorry. I I apologize. <laughs> Go ahead. Just just because I'm a simple family doctor doesn't mean I can't talk about it. Right? <laughs> um, Go. Yeah, so so I mean, kind of like Geisinger, we we are early on in this journey, in part, I suspect, for the same reasons, in that we have had decades of investing in on-prem infrastructure. You know, we've built out you know mirror data centers. We've kept up with the latest you know technology. I mean, we sort of have our own little uh, cloud environment. You know, where we where we utilize distributed platforms and we can run you know, Hadoop on, on our data. So, so we're not in a big hurry to go to the cloud because we feel like we can do what we need now. We also have been on the bleeding edge of so many technologies over the years, you know, the first EHR, the first PHR, you know, you name it, that, uh, that I think that, that we feel like we're, we're happy to let others plow that, feet, that new field, you know, and see what, you know, what it bears. And, and find what some of the challenges are. But, but I did want to comment, you know, scale is, is very important uh, and, and having enough data that you can start to use modern tools of, of ML, of machine learning and artificial intelligence to be able to find those outliers. You know, we were talking about data quality earlier. And I think one of the key things is, is finding where there are outliers and then being able to look at those and figure out is that just bad data that needs to be you know cleaned up or is that really a really important signal in the data that you need to pay attention to uh, and i think the cloud you know any large-scale architecture is, is going to clearly support that you know the other thing is flexibility um you know not just sort of freeing up you know money and and human resources but the the opportunity to spin up environments quickly uh to spin them back down again it, it really uh the cloud promises to to provide a degree of flexibility that i don't think any of us have known certainly not folks like us who have a very large and complex it infrastructure so, Todd, it sounds like uh, there's definitely interest there, but I think what I've heard, uh, one of the things I heard was, but we spent all this money on all this stuff, and so we want to kind of get some use out of it before we make uh, an alternate investment. Is that something you hear sometimes, and what's oh, yeah. your uh, comment back to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And, and, and that's something where, and I dealt with this myself, I had made significant I, 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 Stephen, I can relate. Right? Massive investments um, in other platforms, and I, and I think you hit the flex. It, it, it comes down to flexibility, scale, and what have you. And, and when you want to go try something, and you don't have the capacity internally to do it, <clears throat> there's a very large uh, manufacturing retail kind of company out there that's a that's a Snowflake customer, and they were very happy with the business operations inside of their world of, of analytics. But what they had were use cases that they said that simply were not able to be performed in those on-premise architectures. And so for them, Snowflake was a greenfield and, and that's fine. And we, I've seen it all. I've seen people, you know, migrate massive on-premise systems to Snowflake, you know, you name it from, from the, I, I don't want to, I mean, just, just on-premise architectures, let's be, let's keep it simple. Right. Uh, but I also see people that just start greenfield and say, look, I can't do this with my on-premise architecture. And I don't know if I'm gonna get value out of it anyway. So how about I experiment? How about I try something at scale and I can do that in, in a cloud platform, number one. Number two is 
you know, now with things like data marketplaces and what have you, you can go out, you can bring a little bit of your data, right, your value, and put that in something like Snowflake or other cloud systems. And then with our, you know, the data marketplace capabilities, you can now join that live with data sets from around the world and then experiment and, and, and drive value. So I think that's kind of the, you know, the key is that it, it is a process and there have been massive amounts of, of, of implementation that have been done in these on-premise platforms. And, and I'm not under any false impression, right? That everyone's gonna snap your fingers and, and, and move to the cloud. Uh, you have to be thoughtful. There is security in mind and we've done a lot around our high trust certification and everything to, to, to make people, to get people to a comfortable spot uh, in moving those very, very, you know, sensitive uh, assets to the cloud. Well, it's very interesting because um, people want to be, they want to experiment, they want to try things out, they want to be innovative, and this sounds like a way to do it uh, in a cost-effective way. So it's frustrating when you want to try something and you're, you're probably told, uh, no, you know, we can't, we can't manage that. So, um, all right, let's uh, do our little audience poll here. Let me have a little fun. Um, poor data quality within applications is an even larger issue than poor interoperability among them. You either agree or disagree. So um, let's everybody vote. Even our panelists can vote. Go ahead and vote. Is that the bigger issue or is the bigger issue interoperability? What's the biggest issue if you're picking one and two there? All right. So we'll, we'll look at that in a second. Um, we had such a great interaction here between our panelists, and I want to go to our Ask a Co-Panelist segment, and I want to see, Todd, I want to see what, what you want to know from these two very bright individuals. What is it they can help you understand? Yep. So, Kirk, I'll start with you because it, it does go back to, the, to your background and prior. It looks like you've not been in healthcare for your career. So what, you know, from your background, when you, when you, made, when you crossed the divide, you know, my degrees, although I was in healthcare, my degrees in political science, international relations. And so I've, I've always had fun in my head between the two, um, shall we say. So what goes on inside your head between your engineering background and now what you do at Geisinger? What, what did you, you know, what is the battles that go on inside your head about the, the engineering? And I was aerospace engineering before I changed as well. So I just love to hear your perspective on that. Mm. Well, um, yeah, something something I mentioned a little bit earlier in the uh, in the webinar, um, it, the data quality issues almost always trace back to a bad process, mm -hmm. uh, a process that just doesn't function efficiently. Um, anything from, you know, the, uh, the 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 workflow in the EHR, uh, you know, that the, there's a question missing, or or the field is a text field, and and you know, it, it, there, there's some there's some poorly functioning process and and um and and I, and I guess because of my background um you know i, I the the uh, it, it's almost um i don't know it's it's almost discouraging to see how you know no matter how hard we work on the technical side of things the um the human side um, <laughs> is uh, it, it you know undermines our efforts because because um, you know you you know these are these are human beings with um, with the, you know a nearly infinite um, number of degrees of freedom in, in the way that they can respond to things um, and it's just it, it's it's a, it's an overwhelming um, challenge to to um, to you know to try to to keep those processes managed well enough so that you you get the result that you think you should get 
um, after putting all of that effort into the into in, into engineering the technical side of things. Yeah, I think there, there's a bad engineering joke about if we could just get rid of all the humans, right? Something right. Like, I know there's one. right. Yeah. Um, like Stephen, we gotta get gotta get rid of people like Stephen that want to type in notes and. We want everything, Kirk. Right? We want drop downs. We want people to select things. We don't want free, free form text. Yeah. So, Stephen, I was going to ask you. You know, when? So, at what point do you think that clinic? So, when, when you think about clinical decision support, and there's phenomenal things that are done there, and I don't want to disparage that, but I think it's it, it doesn't. It's not backed by big data in as as broadly you know uh, interpreted or or executed today. And so when do you think we get to big data clinical decision support? What I mean by that is, right, that when you are presented with a patient and all of that patient's data is put inside the EHR, right, and, and, and now there's, there's an ability to bounce that off of millions of cohorts. You know, let's say it's a pretty common chronic condition, not something that's super rare, right? So when it's bounced off of that, when do we get there? What does that look like to you? I think we're going to get there progressively. Um, I think that it's really going to be use case specific. Uh, when I think about the clinical decision support that impacts my daily practice, you know, most of it is, you know, care gap reminders, uh, medication interactions, um, you know, care pathways. Um, truly, you know, those, those in particular, I mean, care gaps, rely on quote big data you know i mean you want the whole picture of where the patient's been what they've had done what some of those results have been um certainly alerts related to clinical conditions you know diabetic out of control but you know but i don't think we've really gotten to the point that we can leverage the data we already have inside our systems you know you were talking earlier about that you know just in a in a large system you, you have to deal with what i call intraoperability you know, just mm -hmm. being able to, to bring the data together that you have. So I, I you know, as an in, the informaticist in me absolutely sees the promise of big data and having more refined views of, you know, whatever decision you're trying to support. Uh, though the clinician in me really, <laughs> you know, I feel like most clinicians can't deal with what they're seeing already. So I think that uh, we have some foundational challenges, which is doing a better job um, visualizing and presenting the most important data at the critical point in the workflow. Uh, I think that we need to build that foundation uh, before we you know, imagine that we're going to be able to leverage then 10 or 100 or 1,000 times more data to inform those decisions. Because right now, it's like just getting people to order the flu shot. You know, is really the biggest challenge. I mean, if somebody ha had a flu shot elsewhere, that's really important. I mean, that, and we get that data, we get it automatically, we get it across care quality, using direct messaging, you know, but then, and some of it, we actually have chosen to, quote, auto-reconcile. You know, so if you, if someone gets a flu shot at a, at a local pharmacy, that will turn off the flu shot alert in our system even before somebody manually downloads it into their immunization history. But that's not true for pneumonia vaccine, you know, and how are we gonna deal with the COVID vaccine? So, I mean, I think there, there are all these layers that we need to deal with. Um, so again, I'm super excited about the big data and the role of the cloud in supporting that. 
But I think we have so many foundational challenges in documentation and leveraging data. Um, I think one of the big things that, that is going to help us find a tipping point in this area is the development of an app ecosystem. Now, we haven't really talked about that, um, but, you know, somebody mentioned fire earlier, you know, as, as data gets more granular and as there are new ways to move it around and as more stakeholders can access that data, I think what we're going to see is, is really smart analytics focused on very narrow use cases, be it diabetes management, you know, you name it. Um, and, you know, and those apps are going to be able to collect the data from many, many sources. They're going to be able to run focused analytics, not like a Geisinger or a Sutter that's trying to do everything for everyone all the time. They're going to say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out how to peel this particular onion, you know, and then they're going to be able to suck in the data, do their magic, come up with their decision support. You know, we're talking about decision support and then push that back out. You know, once the EHR vendors can, can take fire rights and integrate those into the workflow. I see that as really a killer app that we are going to be able to, uh, to leverage. Um, but, but I think all of these foundational pieces, the fire, the cloud are gonna be required and it's happening. You know, information blocking and the CMS rules are making this happen. Yeah, no, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned fire and I joke with our founders that they, they are not healthcare people. Uh, and, but I, I joked with them, I said, you don't realize what you did. And we treat structured and to get a little technical, we treat structured and semi-structured data, both as first class citizens in our SQL database, which means when you bring in fire data, JSON or XML, you can query it right alongside structured data and you can just, and, and it treats it the same. Whereas that, that has not been the case in more of your, your, your legacy architectures and what have you. So. I, I, I tell them what they've done for healthcare, they have no idea. That and being able to ingest genomic data, they didn't, they didn't, they were blown away by the fact that we could do that at scale. So it's amazing, you know, our, our founders and what others did, like unrecognized capabilities that they had no idea what they were doing when they, you know, their backgrounds, you know, financial and media and advertising and all that. I'm like, I don't think you realize what you've done, you know, for healthcare. So I, I, I answers were great. So. All right, very good. We're going to take a look at the poll, but first I want to have my panelists guess at the results. What percentage do you think agree with this statement? Kirk? Well, I, I think it's probably uh, more than half are going to say that data quality is the issue. I, I personally disagree with that, but I think that's probably the, uh, probably the answer that uh, the majority gave. I, I need a number, Kirk. I need a number. Oh, okay, 65%. 65 agree. Todd. Oh, man, I, I can't. This is like the, the mountain climber guy in Price is Right. Like, do you go over now? So, <laughs> um, yeah, what's my rules? Just so I know. No, uh, I can't go so close to you, Kirk, because I was already in that realm. So No, you got to be courteous. I call yeah. it being courteous. Yeah. 55. 55. All right, Stephen. So I'm going to go the other way. I mean, I, having worked in interoperability for so many years now and, and hearing people say that interoperability sucks and uh, it's not really <laughs> happening, uh, I'm going to say that, that people actually uh, felt that uh, poor interoperability was the bigger problem. And as you said, I think people, people sort of have this inherent trust of their own data. It's like you trust your own children. Um, so I'm, I'm going to push it the other way. What's the number? Give me a number, Stephen. Oh, yeah. So, so the question was how many what how many people agreed with this? Poor data, question? right? 
Would, how many agree with this statement? That's the question to you. How, what percentage agree so with this say, statement? I'll say uh, 40%. 40%. All right. Well, the winner is going to be Kirk because the percentage agree is 82% agree with the statement that poor data quality within applications is a bigger issue uh, than interoperability. So people are not um, that confident in their data, right? Yeah. So. so in my defense, I'm going to say that I think some of that is because they see it as the first problem to solve. I mean, it's a, it's a larger issue because it's a more pressing issue. Okay. All right. Your defense is noted. We, that's no problem. We'll the accept that defense. Though, it, the fallacy, though, is that the data quality issue is almost, it's not resolvable until you have really, really good interoperability. Um, you, you, you really can't huh. fix the data. You, you can't fix the data in turn. The, the only way you fix the data is by comparing the, the, the same information across different platforms. Um, interoperability is the, is, is, the, is the key to doing that. Yeah, it forces us to do that. And I agree. I, I brought se several systems together when I went to Snowflake, disparate systems. And all it did, it actually helped me find upstream defects in applications. So back to that point about humans, while the, the direct human input was correct, the human that coded the code, right, the, the software made a mistake and therefore created a data problem. So we can't just blame the practitioners like Steven. We can blame, we can blame the, the coders, right, that they made a mistake as well, right? So it, it, can, it can be both of those. So, uh, and the also, other thing I think it, go sorry, go ahead, Dad. Now I was going to say the other part is machine learning, right? Machine learning is is trash in, trash out. So if, if your underlying data has bad quality, then your models are going to be horrible. Uh, and we saw that as well. Is that you know the better we got at at grooming our data, the better models and results that we got. So sorry, Stephen, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say the other thing is I think that interoperability is part of the uh, toolkit that we're going to use to solve the problem of poor data quality. Because, of course, you know, we all have data governance, data management systems. We do what we can to clean up our data, and, and it's gotten us where we are, which is that 82% of people are worried about it, right? Um, but with interoperability, when you look at the work that the Sequoia Project or eHealth Exchange or others are doing, you know, to look at the quality of the data that they receive or, or that is sending across their systems, I think that's when you get a, an external validator to look at the quality of your data and identify the challenges that you have, I think that, you know, real, realistically, we haven't done a good enough job ourselves. The poll is a perfect example. And then when we have an outside judge looking at our quality, hopefully that will stimulate, stimulate further improvements. Well, I learned something new with the, the concept that interoperability between systems will help you improve your own data quality by comparison. So that is a Definitely uh, interesting for me, and I appreciate that. We are about out of time. Um, excellent, incredible conversation. Uh, we could have gone on a lot longer, but we need to end it here. Regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck for your CEUs. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our site to register for our upcoming events. I want to thank our panel, excellent panel, very much, Dr. Stephen Lane, Kirk Hansen, and Todd Crossland. And I want to thank Snowflake for making this event possible. And I want to thank you, our attendees, for coming. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Thank you.